So what is something, and everyone, I want everyone to answer this question, what is something you should never say to a grad student? So like, what percentage done would you say you are? Honestly, I can't answer that question. What did reviewer two say about your paper? <laughs> and I can assure you the answer is usually something very soul crushing and makes me question everything in life. Maybe what are you doing after grad school? Most people are so focused on just defending, writing their thesis and defending that they haven't given it much thought and they're already too stressed to think about it. So don't ask them. Never ask, when was the last time you had a PAC committee meeting? Hello, hello, and welcome to the 97th episode of Raw Talk and the first episode of season six. As you probably guessed from what you've already heard, today is all about life in grad school. I'm one of your hosts, Melissa, but before we begin, we wish to acknowledge the land on which the University of Toronto and our podcast operates. For thousands of years, it has been the traditional territory of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit. Today, this meeting place is still the home to many Indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and we are grateful to have the opportunity to work on this land. Canada is home to many different Indigenous peoples. We ask you listeners to visit indigenouspeoplesatlasofcanada.ca and native-land.ca to learn more about and reflect upon the Indigenous peoples whose traditional territory they currently occupy and their own role in reconciliation. Okay, let's dive in. Okay, so we're really excited because we think this is going to be a really fun episode to share some of what we've learned about applying to grad school and being in grad school and making it to the end of grad school um, and all of this during a global pandemic, which we'll touch on as well. Um, And you guys, our listeners, have asked some really wonderful questions on social media, so we'll get to those a little bit later on in the episode. And so we're going to start off by going around and introducing ourselves, and we're going to tell you who we are, what year of graduate school we're in, what we're studying, and everybody here is going to describe their grad school experience in three words, which should be pretty funny. So Noor, as our one of our co incoming co-executive producers and the newest grad student here, maybe you can lead us off. Hi, my name is Noor, and I'm an incoming first-year master's student at the Institute of Medical Sciences, and my research is going to be focused on respiratory health in Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome populations. And what are the three words that you would use to describe your grad school experience? Well, I'm starting in September, so I'm going to go with uh, collaborative and exciting. Amazing. And what are you excited about? I just wanted to follow up and ask. I mean, it's a new experience. It's great to like meet a new research team, just work with other students, go to the hospital, just like be in that environment again. So yeah, it's great. There's a lot to learn. So I'm excited for that. Okay, awesome. Okay, uh, Daniel, one of our newest members. It's his first episode ever. We're very excited. My name is Daniel. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. And I'm going into my second year of my MSc at IMS, where I'm researching, I guess, in a very broad and general sense, viral diseases. And I guess I would describe my grad school experience in three words with surprising, confusing, and fulfilling. And what was surprising about grad school so far? I just wasn't expecting it to be like this. And I guess a part of it was I didn't have a podcast episode like this to listen to. Okay, so hopefully we're going to 
prepare future grad students for what lies ahead. Okay, Helen, you're up next. Hi, everyone. I'm Helen. I am actually finishing the second year of my master's at the Institute of Medical Sciences and hopefully wrapping up my degree very soon. (laughs) And my research focuses on the intersections of geriatric oncology and supportive care. If I had to describe my grad school experience in three words, it would be dynamic, organized chaos. Love that. Um, And the organized chaos piece, can you uh, elaborate a little bit? Grad school is just a very interesting experience full of conflict and internal struggle, but equally exciting. I feel like for the majority of the time, I kind of think I know what I'm doing. And then certain things happen and you're like, I'm actually very confused and I have no idea what's happening. But you're sort of just chugging along and you're hoping that you'll hit a point where everything makes sense. And more more likely or not from what I've heard, you still feel pretty confused after your defense, but you're just happy that you've kind you of... You made it to the end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love that. Uh, okay, Jesse. Hello, yeah, I'm uh, Jesse. I'm one of the co-execs with Newer this year. I'm going into my third year PhD at Institute of Medical Science as well. My research is in HIV epidemic modeling, which means this year I've done a little bit of COVID modeling too, just because there was a bit of need in our lab. And if I had to describe my, my grad school in three words, I would say it's been busy, uh, rewarding, and a third word I would just say is debugging. Awesome. Um, okay, and then I'll just quickly introduce myself as well again. So again, my name is Melissa. I have just finished my sixth and final year of my PhD, so I'm hashtag PhD done, which has been great. Uh, just defended in June. And I for my thesis, I studied, and I'm still studying, cancer genetics at SickKids. Um, So I work in the Brain Tumor Research Center there. And that was awesome. And I really enjoyed it. And three words that I would describe my grad school experience would be long, because it's six years, Uh, a little bit circuitous, um, but really, really fun. So looking forward to the conversation in today's episode as well to see how other people's experiences were along the way. Okay, so I think the best place for us to start off as a group is back to the beginning when everybody was applying to graduate school. And I sort of want to talk about what the application process was like for everyone here. Um, So maybe we'll talk about how like we chose our labs and, and our supervisors in the beginning. Does anybody want to start or anybody have a specific story or was their supervisor like their one and only choice when they were starting graduate school? I think... Maybe I want to start off by first saying that everyone has a different learning and decision-making style. So my biggest advice to kind of take a step back and think about this is your first priority is understanding what that process looks like for you and what will make all of this a less stressful process for you. For me, for example, I knew that I'm someone who needs lists. I need systematic steps. And I like color coding. So how I approached it first and foremost was conceptualizing what my hierarchy of priorities were, which will be different for everyone. And for me, it happened that my first priority was the research method I was interested in learning about and then was the research area that I wanted to investigate. And I think the third layer was finding the right PI and research environment that I wanted to be in. And I know for some of my friends, for example, they really cared about lab location or other factors that were related as well. And 
depending on your department. For IMS, for example, when I was applying, they had a really good faculty directory. So once you figure out what your priorities are, you can use those as filters on the website and it'll pull out a more customized list of faculty members currently looking for grad students, which will really help you narrow your search. And then from there, you can do a more like nuanced research by reading the lab's papers and like other aspects to consider. Yeah, and I do want to add, often the online presence of scientists are very outdated. So that was like part of the inception of the podcast even was just to share what was currently going on in in labs and and we sort of switched now. But it is like a bit of a project and like research task in and of itself to really figure out who you want to work with and what they're currently studying, because it could be very different. They could have deviated quite a bit from what's available online. So definitely reaching out to like current grad students or just asking around, use the resources that you have to the best of your abilities to kind of figure out who is out there and really what they're still studying. To your point about reaching out to grad students, I would also add that you can ask people who are in that lab, like about their experiences, like what kind of supervision style, what's the lab culture, do you do things that are social, how often do you meet, are they like available, what kind of edits do they give you on your papers, like all these little things that kind of add up to the dynamic that really makes your experience in grad school and especially like working with your supervisor. That was, yeah, I love that. That was like the one piece of advice I got from when I was an undergraduate student from like grad students in the labs that I worked in. It was just like, take somebody out for coffee or multiple people out for coffee and sit them down and say, for realsies, yay ou nay, like, will this work for me? So it's very, very true. Anything to add here, Um, like Daniel or Noor? Yeah, I actually applied just this past year during COVID, which was an interesting experience in and of itself. I would say like most of the application process was fairly the same in terms of requirements. It was mostly just like that feeling of isolation and not being around people to like reach out to for help, or even like you mentioned, take people out for coffee and like talk to them. That was kind of the biggest challenge I would say during the application process, but it really did help to find mentors who were willing to like virtually help me out. Uh, There's this program called the Community of Support. They have a really great mentorship program for students from underrepresented backgrounds interested in research and STEM. And I was paired up with a mentor who was a graduate student herself, and she kind of went through the application process with me, went over my essays. We kind of had like brainstorming sessions about supervisors and what research I was interested in. And it was mostly just like the reassurance that I got from her that was really, really important that everything would work out eventually because it was at that time like very unpredictable. We weren't sure if grad school was going to be like fully virtual or like a hybrid in-person virtual type of model. So that that mentorship was really, really important. And I really encourage people to find those kinds of mentors. Mm-hmm. Yes, I love that. Because it's very, I, I said, use your resources, but also some people, if you've never worked in a lab before, or uh, if you maybe don't have the best connections, if you have worked in a lab before, but you don't want to reach out to those people, the community of support is an awesome one at U of T specifically. I think they do like medical school applications as well, but they have a whole series dedicated to applications for grad students. Um, So we'll definitely link that in our resources for the episode. 
And how did everyone find the actual application process, like meeting deadlines? Was it easy to, did you apply to multiple programs? Yeah, so I applied to two programs. I applied to IMS and LMP. And I I applied very late. I, I had like a month left for the deadline. I was scrambling like at the end of my undergrad. I was wondering, what am I going to do? And like funny story, but like at one point, one of my references was rejected and it was conditionally accepted into IMS as long as I could provide an alternate reference letter in a week. So that added to stress to that stress a lot more. And I think what makes it worse was that applying during COVID, everybody's like getting emails. All my profs are all swamped with emails. It was so difficult to communicate through email. And I think that's something that that I've gotten better at during COVID, during the pandemic is communicating through emails. So I, the one thing I did want to add here was just a small piece of advice. You have to be interested in what you're going to study, but really like the biggest part is you have to have a good relationship with your supervisor, because if you do want to stay in academia, you can switch what you've studied between your PhD and your postdoc. It doesn't matter what lab you join or what they study really. Um, you, you, although you do have to be mildly interested, I will qualify with that. But like, you have to have a good relationship with your supervisor. And I've seen people who are studying something that's really personally impactful to them, but they don't have a good relationship with their supervisor. And it really sort of sours the whole experience. And I, I was very lucky. I had a, a really wonderful relationship with my supervisor the whole six years. But that was that's why I think I had such a positive experience. Um, and I've seen it go very south, like depending on how the relationship is. And I just want to I don't mean to scare people and everyone's looking at me with like wide eyes now. Nora's like so scared. <laughs> but just making sure you can get along with them right from the beginning is was like honestly the biggest piece of advice that I got before starting. I completely echo that. And I think what I want to add was what a good relationship will look like will be very different for different people. So I think going into the interview, just reflecting on what your working style is and what you want to get out of this grad school experience is, is very important. For example, for me, I knew I want to learn new skills. So any sort of indicator that tells me the professor might be very busy, might not have a lot of time to mentor their students, would be a potentially a red flag for me because I knew I needed a little more mentorship and a little more help and someone who was willing to communicate and really build my skill sets with me. Whereas for my friend, he was applying to a PhD with already publications from undergrad under his belt and as well as after finishing a master's. So his priority was less, I think, support as much as that was important. His priority was how productive is the lab? How straight to the point is this PI? And is this PI going to give him the space and flexibility and not micromanage? Obviously, we both wanted good relationships with our supervisors, but the criteria and what we envisioned that to be was so different. And that's completely fine. It's more just figuring out what that is, because there's a lot of good faculty and professors out there, but they might not all be good for you. I would uh, also suggest to just kind of like have the attitude that you know what you're going to give to the lab and that you're not just a student, you're a person that's going to work with the rest of the team and kind of like have that attitude as well. Like, this is what I have to offer. I know it can be a bit frustrating sometimes when you like reach out to supervisors and, you know, you don't hear back or like they might reject you early on and you're just kind of like, oh, well, I'll just kind of settle with um, whatever I can get at this point. I think it's important to just kind of like stay motivated and know what you have to offer. Good, solid advice here. 
And I think, Helen, you just had maybe something to add here. What I kind of want to say right now is also provide advice for maybe undergrad students who are potentially thinking about this for the future is to really put yourself out there and expose yourself to a breadth of research experiences. Because I think another component is just luck. Like all of us are interested and are super passionate about what we're doing, but it's not something we maybe perhaps consciously knew going in. And so put yourself in positions where you will be exposed to these different experiences. Um, I know for me in undergrad, I did a lot of different projects, so it wasn't one continuous research experience. I had no idea what my preference was, so I tried out one project in mathematical modeling, one basic science one, one clinical one. And for one, I even went to BC to do an ecology fielder project and spend my summer fishing along the coast of British Columbia, uh, which is really different from what I'm currently doing. And looking back, I think about all these experiences very fondly because it allowed me to make a more informed decision going into grad school. And of course, take this with a grain of salt, because I know a lot of people in undergrad who were incredibly self-aware going into it, had already had research experience and knew from the get-go what they wanted wanted to do. And if that's you, go for it, learn, get publications. And I think that's going to work out amazing as well. But what I'm also saying is, if you don't know what your preference is, don't be afraid to explore. Don't be afraid to take your time. Don't put yourself on a timeline and feel like you have to figure things out for yourself immediately, give yourself process and time to explore and experiment. Yeah, I love that. And I just, and I want to add here, I think maybe two things that you're saying is one, I think a lot of people get really tied up with timelines. Like when I graduate my undergrad, I have to start a master's immediately, or perhaps a lot of us maybe are thinking I need to do my two-year master's and then go to medical school uh, because I only have a certain number of years and then I'm going to be a little bit older in a few years from now, et cetera, et cetera. And that's like a huge lie. Everybody is on their own timeline. Um, Just feel free to take a breath, take a year off. Um, I think that's really healthy. I did not do that. I went straight from my undergrad into a mat and Nora did take a year off. So maybe she can comment on this. Yeah, you're, you're really, really right about that. One of the biggest advice that I can give people is to just go at your own pace, whether pe- people might tell you you're going too fast or too slow, but really you're the only person who knows how what the right pace is for you. I finished my undergrad in three years and then I decided to take the year off afterwards before I go into grad school. I knew that was right for me because I felt pretty burnt out after undergrad. Like I started undergrad the same time that I moved to Canada and I never even had the chance to like explore the country or like do fun things like get back into photography or digital art and I think all of these things that make me a person outside of my academics are very important and I think during the year that I took off although it's not like your typical gap year where you get to travel because it was during a pandemic I still spent a lot of time with friends and family and just invested some time into myself. And I think that made me feel a lot more refreshed and starting grad school next month or actually next week, I feel like I'm excited for it and I don't feel burnt out at all. I felt like I had a really good break. So yeah, highly recommend to just kind of like go at your own pace. And you did get back into digital art, which has been awesome for my Instagram feed. (laughs) Yeah, it really helped to just kind of like invest time into hobbies. I think that Sometimes we think that when you're a graduate student, all you have to think about is research, but 
there are things if you have interests outside of research pursue them like they're still very very important and they make you who you are so yeah invest in your hobbies yeah wonderful yeah you are not your success in grad school okay so maybe we'll move on to a little bit about sort of tips for students who are maybe just starting in grad school so we, we had a few questions from Instagram that I think are going to be useful uh, to maybe orient ourselves. Um, so one of the questions was, is it possible, like if you're just starting out in grad school, um, is it possible to do grad school and have a full-time or part-time job simultaneously? And I think that's a really important question for people just starting out to figure out because you don't want to jump into something and then realize you maybe overcommitted yourself. So does anybody have thoughts on this or potentially have full-time or part-time? Yes, Jesse. <laughs> yeah, so I'm like working on this part-time job at the same time doing COVID stuff um, as my PhD. And honestly, in some cases, it's actually nice because like when you're super frustrated with research, you can like take a pause. So it's definitely helpful, but I haven't done that at the same time as taking courses. So I would say that's a caveat. Like if you're taking three courses at the same time, that might be a little bit more difficult, or at least like you should discuss with your supervisor expectations. And if, if obviously you need to work for financial reasons, just making sure that you and your supervisor are on the same page about the time that you have available to, because that should never be a, a barrier to you finishing grad school. Taking on additional work due to a financial need is a situation that a lot of students might have to consider. And this really brings us to the financial aspects of grad school, which is a pretty important discussion to have. On this, I actually know a great person we can call to help us unpack this a bit more. Samantha Yang Estevis, she is the founder of the Graduate Representation Committee, or the GRC, a group dedicated to advocacy work on graduate student finances. Let's call her now. Yeah. Hey, Sam, we're so excited to have you join us today. Could you first introduce yourself to our listeners? I am Samantha Ng Estevez, and I am a final year graduate student in the Department of Molecular Genetics in the Faculty of Medicine, and I am the founder of the Graduate Representation Committee, uh, which is a student group within the Faculty of Medicine. We just had a couple questions, I guess, just in terms of finances and, and how graduate students can work around finances, and I know the GRC does a lot of work with that. So how about we can get started by maybe you can tell us a little bit about the GRC and, and what is it that you do and what the group does. It's a student group that uh, works to collect data from our student population, mainly through an annual survey. And this data is used to compile reports in order to accurately portray what the financial situation of graduate school is in University of Toronto's Faculty of Medicine. And then that data is used to make uh, stipend and financial decisions by the faculty. So it's an advocacy group, and we work to provide data to the people who ultimately make decisions so that they can make more informed decisions. Yeah, that's great. I, I actually recall filling out the GRC survey or questionnaire about a week prior. So if any graduate students are listening in, reminder to please fill out that survey. It has a lot of impact. So can you give us a sense of maybe what we learned from past GRC reports? Yeah, I think year by year, depending on what's happening, happening in Toronto, happening around the globe, the faculty are attuned to different types of data. Uh, when we started, the biggest finding that we have was actually putting a number to how many students actually can support their day-to-day -day living expenses from their funding alone. So at the beginning, it was really like, 
really showing them the reality of, you know, this is our stipend and students get awards, but not all faculty members are aware of actually how our awards are administered and the fact that rarely does 100% of the award money go towards additional financial support for the student. And that fact alone, even though it's written into our stipends, was something that wasn't really understood or felt by the faculty. So at the very beginning, it was collecting data on no, 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 this is how much they get paid. This is how much they're earning. And this is how much additional money they get. And and, and not just in anecdotal form, but actually in saying that something like 20, 25% of our students get these awards, but only 20% of the money that we actually bring in goes to students. And then showing the faculty in the thousands of dollars, this is how much money students get in the thousands of dollars to live in Toronto for an entire year. And then we marry that data with cost of living metrics data to say that, um, and a lot of faculty members, they own a house, maybe they're paying mortgages, they don't really know what the price of a one bedroom apartment is, or even a, six, a bedroom in a six person house is. Um, so really showing that like this is, you know, the average students gets twenty twenty five thousand $25,000 a year, they spend $1,200 a month on rent alone. Um, you know, if we factor in that they want to buy one or two outfits a year, and food and then saying like this is what cell phones cost um so putting all of that together in front of the faculty member in a data-driven way to paint the picture of what the average student is going through actually saying this is the reality of your students right now and at the very beginning it was very eye-opening you can't say like oh well you know you don't need to live in a lavish apartment when we're pulling stats can data on what the cost of living in toronto is and they can't really argue with like well the student is just making expensive choices when no, you know, the actual cost of a one bedroom apartment is this. So at the very beginning, it was more shaping that. But I think as the GRC has grown and gained recognition, uh, they understand that. And Sam told us that through working with faculty and students, the survey has been constantly changing to better understand the financial situation of graduate students. The survey is always evolving to reflect the current issues. And in the last year, we included language for the first time on racialized students, so uh, expanding are polling on the demographics of students. Um, and that in part was because after the summer that we had in 2020 uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement and the expansion of that, um, it's become a lot more reasonable to ask those types of demographic questions. And what our survey actually found last year is that when you ask students if they were able to support their living based on their stipend alone, it's still very low, but almost 27% of people who identify as male say they can support themselves on their stipend. Um, but women or who, people who identify as other were down at 15, 18% respectively. So again, that's the first time when we're analyzing our data based on gender. And then again, last year was the first year we were able to ask demographic questions about race and if they identify as racialized individuals. And when we asked whether you've ever felt food or housing insecurity, People who identify as racialized said that they had 37% felt food insecurity and 29% felt uh, housing insecurity, whereas those numbers dropped uh, for non-racialized individuals to 24% and uh, 16.5% respectively for food and housing security. So it's showing that, you know, as time changes and we're more acceptable to asking certain types of questions, we can get different data out. That, that's really good to hear. So moving on to our next question, a lot of incoming graduate students and even graduate students now have probably some incoming anxiety in terms of handling finances in grad school. So do you have any advice for them on how to do that? 
Yeah, they're very different things. Managing your finances as a first year student versus managing your finances in subsequent years. And I'm going through it in your final year, which is a little different as well. So for incoming students or students who are in their first year, it's different because we have to pay 100% of our tuition by May, but we receive our stipend over 12 months, which means when you're in your first year of university, you're and to all first year students right now, this is incredibly pertinent, you have to pay 100% of your tuition whilst only receiving 66% of your stipend. So it ends up being you have to underspend for your expenses for the first uh, eight months of your year. So that's a really, really big thing to watch out for. I, I would also say that like, you know, first couple of years is hard, but there's a lot of other students out there, most students actually, who have second jobs while they're working it. So you can feel a lot of pressure from your supervisor to be in the lab all the time or, you know, making graduate school your first and only uh, job. But that's not the reality for the majority of students. In the 2020 report, 44% of students are externally employed, and that's up 30%. So in 2019, one in three students, so 33% of students were externally employed. And the majority, the reason people say for having external employment is additional income, whereas a rebuttal that faculty members say is like, oh, well, they have additional employment because they have passion projects that they want to get involved in when, you know, the reality is 44% of students who were polled have external employment. And the reason for that employment is to make more money. And so what kind of insight would you give to someone thinking about balancing like a job with grad school? I mean, it's. It's like the nature of graduate school is is unique in that you can take, depending on your work situation, your schedule is very flexible. Ultimately, a second job takes time. And the more time that you're not working on your thesis, like the longer it takes to graduate. It's, it's an individual's choice. If you need to have a second job or if you want to have a second job, if that's experience that you want, or even if, you know, diversified activities, seeing school as like, like that school and I have other facets of my life that I'm doing as well. Yeah, I would not say don't have a second job or do have a second job. I would say, though, that it is not against the law for you to have a second job. Agreements and contracts that we sign at the beginning of the year state things, something akin to that, like depending on your institute or what you're signing, um, they may say something discouraging you from having additional employment. Uh, but legally, you're allowed to have additional employment. That's not something can stop you from doing. Yeah, great. Thank you. Uh, those were, those, I mean, those were all re- very wise words. So uh, we appreciate your your insight on that. I have um, another thing to to bring up because uh, one of the big initiatives that the GRC is undertaking is implementing international student representatives in every department within, not the faculty of medicine, but every department that's associated with the GRC. And I think this is so important. And this was an initiative that's been spearheaded by Cyril, Cyril Tan, who is, uh, who was the first international student representative in molecular genetics. And one of the outgoing things that I did when I was a president of that department was create the position of international student rep, because Early on, like the first year we were receiving results from the GRC survey, it was very, very clear that what international students go through is very different than what domestic students go through. You know, the issues that come up with professors not wanting to take on international students because their stipend is so much higher, their inability to apply for many, many of the common awards, because a lot of them mean that you have to be a domestic student, permanent resident or Canadian citizen to apply for the uh, to apply for these awards. 
But for the GRC, what I've been advocating for is that once these students are part of our student body and part of our academic community, we owe it to them to hear their issues and provide resources that speak to these issues. And I've been really, really proud of Cyril and the current student rep, uh, international rep in molecular genetics, pushing for all of the other departments to put that uh, position into their student bodies. So one thing I would say to the international students who might be listening to this is reach out to your local student body. They may by now or be having elections very soon for an international student representative. So I think it's a super, super important issue. If you speak on finances of the university as a whole, like international student tuition money is a really, really big, really big part of university finances. And once these people are part of our community, we owe it to them to hear their issues, address their issues and provide resources and community support, especially since they're coming from their home country. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing up that last point. I just want to see, I definitely know a couple of international students too in my department who either were stuck overseas and were able to come to Canada and had to work remotely or came and then got stuck here and weren't able to go see their families. They were all like unique experiences, but they all experienced incredible challenges that are different from what domestic students would experience either financially or experience wise work experience and culturally and that has exacerbated because of COVID so now more than ever I think having that international representation having a student rep who understands what they're going through is going to be more important than ever and it's not like I said this is these issues are they're not easy but they're tangible way more so than you know the cultural aspects. I'm not advocating that like oh we need to have I, I mean this might be true as well but like you know building a stronger community so people have like friends and supports like that's great but also like literally just having somebody to email to say like hey my visa did this have you ever do, do you know what office in the university to email about this. So yeah, more tangible problems are attractable. But yeah. So look out for those new uh, international student reps that are coming up. Thank you guys for uh, for inviting me to come and talk. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And with that, I think we'll head back to the roundtable discussion with Melissa. Our next question that we got through Instagram, which was, how do you find motivation when your experiment does not work out? Which, if you have not had a failed experiment, you're lying to us. So who wants to tackle this one first? Um, yeah, in some cases, like, we try to understand, first of all, why that's the case. So with our models, we can, because they're kind of mechanistic and we define and can kind of observe all of the little intermediate variables leading from like whatever data we put into the data output, we try to understand like mechanistically why this result is the way that it is, or potentially like varying those inputs to determine under what conditions is it significant and under which it's not. So we kind of just like change the framing a little bit of what result we'd like to talk about. Sometimes the research is like that. It's like creative. You have to kind of figure out what's truly happening and how, to, how best to describe it, which may be not what you originally set out to investigate. Nice. Anybody else have thoughts here? Yeah, I, I also think it's really important to keep in mind that this is completely normal in research. It's completely normal to have negative results or an experiment that doesn't work out. Uh, for me, when an experiment doesn't work out, I almost immediately ask a more experienced person to help me out as a master's student, and I'm still learning a lot, so there's a good chance that I mess something up, like my controls or my my protocols. So I always ask people for help, and, and that usually gets me going a little bit. I just move forward, recognizing that this experiment didn't work out. Let's try to make the next experiment work so that I don't have to do this again. 
And I guess in terms of like the bigger picture, in terms of getting negative results, my project recently, I found out had negative results. Nothing was significant. And I think what really helped me through that was knowing that negative results are still good results. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't publish them or you shouldn't have them. And having a PI that understands that. So my supervisor was very supportive throughout the entire process. I guess it's, it's in terms of motivation for when things don't work out the way you expect them to, that's science. That's part of science. Yeah, I just want to echo where the conversation was going towards about just normalizing failures. Sometimes for me, even going on Twitter and seeing people talk about their failures in terms of results or even applying to grants or things like that. I love that there has been a cultural shift towards being more open about those things. And you start to realize, hey, this isn't me. This isn't always a reflection of my incompetence. Sometimes this is part of the learning journey and it's completely okay. Um, Because sometimes I find that when the experiment isn't going the way I want it to, or if the result doesn't look the way I expected it, I start internalizing it and spiral a bit, and you start to sink into the space that is not productive, when really you should be reaching out to help, you should be open about it. It is okay to tell your PI that you're struggling a bit. It's not a show of incompetence. That communication aspect is so important, and I think the people around you understand that you're here to learn. At the end of the day, we are students. They don't expect us to know everything. In fact, when I reach out to my PI, sometimes his response to me would be like, hey, this is actually interesting. I don't know why this is happening either. Let's reach out to the statistician. Let's reach out to this person. And then I think I become more encouraged realizing, hey, this is a normal process, even for my supervisor, who is so knowledgeable and so advanced in his career. He sometimes stumbles upon problems, too, and it's perfectly okay to ask for a helping hand. Yeah, I love and I think two things that you said were really you are a trainee. You're the whole reason that you are here is to learn. If something fails and you feel like you're wasting your time or you're wasting resources, that's not the case. You're you're literally here to learn. So it's it's okay to mess up a protocol or it's okay to mess up a code or it's okay to not quite understand some algorithm or the way that some system in a cell works, for example, because that's literally why you are here. So people should not be making you feel bad about that and you should not be feeling bad about that. And then I think the other piece is being able to approach your supervisor about those failures, because I think a lot of times we don't want to share bad data with our supervisors. I've definitely been down that road or just in general, when things fail in the lab, I've been in the past, I've been really scared to approach my supervisor, but it's not going, it's not going away usually. And they, they'll probably remember at some point and ask you about it. And so it's always wise to just go to them and um, not be afraid and, and explain and to them because yeah, like you said, Helen, they might have ideas about why something didn't work or they might still think it's really interesting. And um, that's happened to me as well. And it actually ended up in a paper, which was, which was really nice. Um, So I think just not being afraid of that because having that sounding board is actually super, super important um, to sort of explain like why things failed and how we can change it going forward or why it might be potentially really interesting. So thanks for adding that. Anybody else have anything to add here about staying motivated? I, I just realized we're, we're all coming from kind of an experience where we're comfortable talking to our PIs. But for anybody out there that doesn't feel comfortable talking to your PI, there are people that you can talk to. Like I'm pretty sure at IMS, there are graduate coordinators that if you have issues like this come up and you don't feel comfortable talking to your PI, they are your number one resource in order to reach out to 
in, in situations like that. And potentially your committee as well. Yes, very good point. They're here for you. And this is literally part of their job. I think some people are often afraid to like schedule committee meetings. And yes, I've definitely been down that road. Jesse's giving me a look. Um, when was your last committee meeting, Jesse? <laughs> no <laughs> comment. Yeah, no comment. <laughs> and I think uh, for people who don't know what that is, a progress advisory committee meeting is just uh, where you're supposed to have them every six or so months. Uh, I definitely had them like not as that frequently, but just making sure that you're uh, sort of on track. And I think sometimes people put those off and we're all guilty here. It's okay to say, but even if you don't have any new data or everything has failed since the last time that you met or, you know, the pandemic happened and it really limited what you could do, it's still good to check in with your committee. And just even if the meeting is like 20 minutes, just to have it and explain what's been happening for the last six to 12 months and get their advice on what's feasible going forward for you to finish your degree in a timely manner. Because sometimes if uh, maybe you're not seeing eye to eye with your supervisor specifically about that, your committee can sort of bring them down to earth and say, look, like there's a global pandemic happening. Um, They need to wrap up for by this time. And perhaps like these extra experiments or this extra work is going to be a little bit ambitious. So just making the time to schedule those is I know we all. I've been down that road. I put them off for ages, and just all hoping that our supervisors don't tune into this particular episode. <laughs> I wanted to say that it's like really comforting to hear this discussion as someone who's about to start their masters. I'm like getting my pen and paper here, writing all these things down. But it's it's really nice to just hear um, how normal it is to just kind of like have these failures during grad school and know that there are people there to support you so I hope to whoever is listening they they find it comforting too and the sort of last piece of advice I want to give is I think all of our immediate instinct when we're experiencing something going wrong or maybe experiencing failure or mistakes or anything like that in a work setting, our immediate response is to troubleshoot right away, is to try to fix it, is to try to do something very action-based, which I think is great, but sometimes understand that it's okay to hit a wall and then just put your work down for a bit, go out for a walk, maybe take the weekend off even, and come back to it on Monday with a fresh mind, because I think that will help immensely. hmm I think that leads really nicely into our next question, which is how can we prevent burnout as a grad student and maintain a work-life balance? Um, So does anybody have ideas? I I know for me, just like going for a walk and not being near electronics at all is really grounding. And I I just don't sometimes. And then I, my mood, I can really feel it if I haven't been outside or had sort of fresh air for a while. I know that for me, it's really helped to just kind of like set boundaries in my day. For example, I'll just kind of like not answer emails after 6 p.m. and I'll just kind of answer everything in the next morning unless it's very urgent. It helps to set those boundaries, especially if you are working from home. 
things can get blurred between your work life and your personal life. So setting these boundaries is very important. Also knowing if like some people, you know, like to do some like light work in the weekends or just kind of like things that aren't too heavy so that you can come back the next Monday feeling fresh. I find that for me, it, it is really important to just kind of like take the weekend easy. I know it can be hard because it's like, oh, well, I have like a couple hours, might as well get this uh, done now. But like, you don't want to burn yourself out and then reach a point where you feel too exhausted to do anything. And then another thing, it really helps to just kind of like zone out, turn everything off, go spend time with friends, family, just be around people, refresh, and then come back the next day and you'll feel much better. Yeah. I love that about setting boundaries. I remember we interviewed a few seasons ago now, Dr. Jennifer Jones um, at PMH. She said that she does not send emails or answer emails after I think 6 p.m. as well. And as, as a point of principle, just she wants people to be at home with their families, um, no weekend meetings with staff uh, or, or st- certainly not students, um, which I thought was really refreshing because I think from a PI level, from a scientist level, um, a lot of people are sort of rewarded, quote unquote, for being on all the time and being answering emails on weekends and, and at night. And I just think it's nice when it comes from the top, not to to respect like sort of boundaries if, if people have families and, um, you know, have plans on weekends <laughs> and evenings. Yeah. Thank you for saying that, Noor. Yeah. Sort of along the same lines of that. Honestly, if you're a scheduled person too, schedule those in the way you would schedule in your work meetings. Schedule in like your cooking time of tonight, you're going to spend two hours making a meal for yourself and enjoy it. Schedule that time in because for me, I'm not as in tune with the natural cues of when I need to rest, I guess. So I will work until I burn out and then I'm like, okay, I need to rest and that's not healthy. And then you're starving. Exactly. (laughs) That's the problem. (laughs) And you don't feel like cooking. Yeah. (laughs) No one's having a good time. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, schedule those in and I think prioritize those the same way you would prioritize work sometimes as hard as that can be. I mean, surprisingly for me, and I I don't know how others feel about this, but I've been able to, I think, I feel like I've been able to maintain a better work-life balance in grad school than I did in undergrad. Yeah, actually, me too. Yes, I would agree with that. Like, I feel like it's a different kind of stress where instead of like focusing on like four to five different courses at a time, you're only focusing on one project and maybe a couple courses on the side as well. Um, And like another thing is like, I feel like undergrad prepared me for this pretty well. Like it was a four year journey where I recognize, learned to recognize my own symptoms of burnout and knowing what I need to relieve those, which is for me, it's like two days to wind down. And another thing is like, I've learned to not feel bad taking breaks. I've kind of learned to not beat myself up for taking time off when I felt like I wasn't productive. Breaks are a necessary thing. And if I don't have them, then well, I burn out and I'm just useless for about a month. So it's better to take that two day break than to end up being burned out for a month. I feel that so much because the guilt aspect is almost something that you can't control until you consciously are aware that that's an issue. This summer, when things start opening up, I remember going back home, spending time with my family. And there was honestly a week where I was doing work, but I wasn't 
as productive, I think, as I would have liked. I was beating myself up so much about that. I felt so guilty. I felt so sad. And then I remember I was venting to my mom about it. And she's like, what are you feeling guilty about for being a human? Like after a year of being in lockdown, of being stressed out, of just work, work, work all the time. Sometimes I think we're finding a good balance between work and life. Sometimes maybe we're feeling like, oh, it's not even work-life balance. Maybe we have been sort of taking a step back from work. Maybe we aren't as productive as we could be from certain objective measures that we have in our mind. And sometimes that's perfectly okay. Definitely communicate that to your PI, communicate that to people around you and make sure that it's not taking away from other people's work and your own work in a major way. But sometimes it's okay to recognize that you're a human being, you have your own limitations and maybe you just need a break and that's fine. So I think we will move on and discuss grad life during COVID um, because I'm sure it was like a little bit different for all of us. Um, So how I'm curious to see how routines were affected and how did it feel for people and and what sort of changed and how did your motivation change and and all that. Anybody want to start us off? Jesse? Honestly, not much change. Like being a dry lab I can work remotely, which I ended up doing actually to spend more time with my girlfriend. Very, very little changed. I would say the biggest thing, and this comes back a little bit to like work-life balance. And I think something you said, Daniel, is just like, sometimes you could never leave your room if you really had to, and that can get depressing. Yeah, it's like you you can do a lot of different things, uh, whether it be working on research projects or other extracurriculars or whatever it is. But if you are doing all of those things from your room and in front of a screen, you kind of like lose that variety and it all feels the same. So I would say like that was probably the hardest thing that you not even being able to like socialize with people in between for breaks. And it's just kind of like you sitting in your room and you don't really feel like you're having the full experience. And I think initially the benefits of working from home was that there was suddenly all this newfound time that you save from not having to commute from place to place or even just having small talk with people or whatever. And I think for me, it was really hard to adjust to this mentality that I suddenly had about having to be ultra productive because I'm like, well, now I'm in a pandemic. There's all this newfound freedom and there's such this, I guess, culture of, hey, we got it learn new skills while balancing a full-time graduate student's schedule while also being healthier and making all these new changes to my life. And I think after a month or two of that, I had to just sort of take a step back and recognize, hey, yes, there's more time, but we're also all going through something very difficult. There's so many different layers of compounded grief from a community going through this trauma that is the pandemic. And even the idea of like grieving my project, figuring out how to pivot it from something that I felt so strongly and passionate about, but at the time was just simply not possible anymore. I think that was such an adjustment, but a very important learning experience. Yeah, I think the, I, I don't know about anyone else. I definitely was not more productive during COVID as a graduate student than pre pandemic. And I think that was something that my committee definitely understood, which I was really appreciative of because of so much uncertainty. Um, looking back, I'm definitely know that I've built resilience over the last like year and a half and just understood how much I can pivot. 
Um, but it's also okay, yeah, not to be super productive. And I think like if you're looking to graduate and you're looking to, you know, write up your thesis and and leave graduate school and, and move on or leave academia, for example, your committee will understand at this point and they will sort of help you navigate that situation and and wrap up your thesis and say, you know, it's reasonable for you to write your last chapter um, with a few questions that, and they'll ask you about it in your exam and, and that's okay uh, because they, they understand that you were delayed by, you know, six months, eight months, a year. And, and that's just the reality right now. A lot of research is really hurting, which is so unfortunate, but it's good to pivot resources, I guess, to where it's needed. Um, for myself, I started grad school like after the second wave of COVID here. I would say my grad school experience, aside from what everybody else's experience is, is basically like classes are online, which was difficult. And in terms of routine, I wake up a lot later and I go to bed a lot later now. I don't know if that's COVID or if it's just because I used to do that anyways. But yeah, I would say grad school for me, it didn't change too much. Nice. I do like that you were able to like respect your own circadian rhythm through this, though. Because I think there, yeah, there is a bit of a culture of, you know, being there at least nine to five when, you know, in reality, you can kind of, you can really make your own hours in graduate school if you can plan your own schedule, which is uh, like one of the parts that I really loved about it, just being able to sort of command your own time. And it's something I'm going to miss for sure is unique to like this period of your life. And I see some people nodding here. Like you you don't have to work on Monday, but you might have to work on Saturday. (laughs) I will say one thing I'm really grateful for was since the pandemic happened, I feel like when I have meetings with my supervisor and he would more consciously ask about how my day was, how my week is, how am I doing? And I know even SGS came out with this whole survey that was mandatory for supervisors and students to fill out about how their progress has been affected by COVID and having more nuanced discussions about their mental health and things like that. I think it did provide a space that opened up important conversations that needed to be had. And I'm so incredibly grateful that I was supported through my process and my PI was very cognizant of leading those conversations, opening up those conversations and creating a space that did feel safe for me to express my feelings and express the struggles I was going through. Yeah. And thanks for saying that, because I think it's going to be unique to everyone. Um, And we haven't even touched on like how the experience of like international students, for example, would have been affected. And that's like at the leadership level, something people need to be thinking about. And, and, you know, our supervisors should be aware of because I, my family lives relatively close to Toronto. So it's been reasonably okay staying in touch with them. You know, we're on the same time zone. I see them occasionally and, just have that having that support system nearby. But for a lot of people, even in my lab, their families are overseas. And it's been just so difficult because they, they're they used to visiting them at least once a year for a few weeks. Um, and they haven't done that in two years, which is just like wild to me. So just like checking in with your peers who are living far away from home, and making sure that they are supported as well, I would say is, is a huge change um, for people. I think one thing that I'm really grateful for with things opening up, especially in labs, is that I get to actually see the grad students, like my my peers and stuff like that. And we actually get to talk. And and aside from talking about experiments and how I can do my experiment better or how, you know, things I can do differently, uh, it's also great to get in touch with them and see what they're doing in their life. And they're interested in seeing what's going on in my life. So it's, it's, 
I think we're we're getting to the point where at least like lab stuff it feels a little bit almost back to normal, at least from what I've experienced. Yeah, and I would say that's actually like a shout out to the wet lab life because um, once we started sort of going back at like 40%, 50% capacity, which was a few months into the pandemic, I was so happy to have small talk with people who weren't living in my like tiny condo <laughs> because I think like I just forgot like how much that improves my overall mood and just like, yeah, mental health in general. But at the same time, there were I know that there were people pre when the vaccines were starting to be administered that were really fearful of even coming into work and commuting into work. And that was a bit of an adjust and a bit of an adjustment, just trying to navigate what every individual's sort of preferences were and comfort levels. Um, But I, I enjoyed it for sure. So I would agree with you, Daniel. I think I guess the quick point I wanted to bring up is when labs were returning for a lot of students, they were just excited about being able to finally start doing their work again because, you know, work progress has been delayed so much. But I think it is important for um, department leadership as well as students at every level to have a more nuanced discussion about what resources are available to people. Some people have access to cars and are able to more comfortably go to the labs versus some people do have to take the TTC and might not be comfortable in doing that. But when everyone else is returning to the lab, you kind of feel like you have to. One good thing is I do see these conversations being had more during the pandemic than I think the pre-pandemic world. But unfortunately, there are a lot of problems and these issues do impact different communities disproportionately. Hopefully moving forward, we'll have those systems of support in place that will be able to provide more accommodations and allow these opportunities to be more accessible to people. And uh, one additional question still along the lines of navigating COVID, how do you feel like you've grown since the pandemic started? I've definitely felt like I've gotten a lot more comfortable with uncertainty. I think at the start of it, I was just really anxious about the fact that I didn't know what was going to happen or what my future look like, especially because I'm the kind of person who likes to plan things ahead. And it is good to like plan things ahead and have a plan for the future. But just having that mindset of things may not work out the way that I want them to, and that's okay. That was the biggest change for me coming out of it. Now I I feel a lot more comfortable knowing that things might change at some point and I'll just kind of like be okay with it. I kind of trust that wherever I, I end up or whatever happens, I'll make something meaningful out of it. So yeah, that that mindset shift uh, was a big learning step for me. I also think I became in general more comfortable with being more vulnerable. And I'm very grateful for the amount of people that I was able to connect with on a deeper level because of that. I don't know if it's because we're having professional meetings in the comforts of our pajamas at home or maybe speaking through a virtual platform as that layer of anonymity. But I do think this past year has created a new space for more open and honest conversations about different barriers and struggles and even growth that people have had, whether that being pandemic or not pandemic related experiences. And that's something that I'm hoping will carry through and translate into maybe action-based changes in whatever reality will look like in a quote-unquote post-pandemic world. If we get there, (laughs) fingers crossed. (laughs) Anyone else have anything to add here? I mean, adding on to what everybody else said, I think for myself, I've had a lot more free time to do the things that I've enjoyed doing that I didn't 
in the past. Um, I've started reading a lot more. I think I've read more books in my graduate, like in my one year of grad school, than I have in my past four years of undergrad. But I've started biking a lot more. I've been doing yoga as well, and you know, these are all things that I didn't do before. And I feel like I'm a lot better off now that I've had a little bit more time nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. Okay. And then if you could go back and speak to your past self from the last year, what would you say? And I want everyone to answer this question. So maybe we'll start from Jesse and go back through the years of grad school. I did a systematic review. It was very painful. There was a lot of data that got extracted that didn't end up in the paper. And so I think it's relevant to systematic review, but potentially also to some other type of research, which is writing the results section basically with like placeholder values for like everything you're actually going to put in the paper. I know it's a bit hard, like I mentioned earlier, where sometimes there's lots of unexpected results. And so that can affect the framing, but like that would have really <laughs> saved me a lot of pain um, extracting data that didn't end up needing. So um, just like being very deliberate about what your contribution is hoping to be with this paper and like being very focused on what are the results you actually need um, to do that. Which again, maybe goes against some of the science where like you're bouncing around different things to investigate and you're not actually even sure what the main result is gonna be yet. Um, I, I think that that's solid advice though. I've heard it like multiple times when you're mapping out your paper. This is like not unique to systematic reviews when you're mapping out your papers I literally, and I would like, maybe we can show this on like um, Instagram or something. My first paper, I drew out what I thought all of the figures were going to look like. And, and if I put the figures like next to what actually ended up in the paper, it's like amazing. Like they're almost exactly the same. And I had not done all of the work yet, which was um, very cool to see. So yeah, I think like that just really helps navigate how you write your results section and, and provides clarity, which is really important and very elusive. Um, okay, Helen, what would you say to yourself from a year ago? Honestly, it's sort of along the same theme of this discussion that we just had, but applying that mentality of being wary of scope and being selective of what, what you invest your time into in other aspects of your life as well. Because I think we took a lot of time discussing the benefits of doing multiple things, of being on different projects, of being involved with extracurriculars. But I think there's a balance. Those are systems of support. But at one point, you kind of hit a point of becoming overwhelmed by the amount of things you might have taken on all of which you're equally excited about, all of which could be equally beneficial to your mental health or even your professional career. But for me, I would tell myself to learn to say no to certain things and prioritize my time because it's not only respecting your own time, but also respecting the commitment that others are asking of you. As much as in the moment, it's such an awkward conversation to have to say no, but in the long run, it is going to benefit all parties involved and it is important to prioritize and know what you can and cannot take on. Yeah, yeah, and thanks for saying that. Um, and Daniel, how about you? Don't be afraid. I think one of, the, one of the biggest things that slowed me down during my early experimentation was that I would be so terrified of doing like an actual experiment that I would spend so much time preparing, so much time doing practice experiments that it, it wasted so much time. Um, like one of my first experiments, I did I think eight prior practice experiments before doing the actual one and when I did the actual one it was like flawless 
And I feel like I, I probably could have done that like four practice experiments earlier. So don't be afraid. Have confidence in, in what you do and in, in your work. Yeah, thanks for saying that because I, I was definitely like that as well at the beginning of grad school. I was always scared to like put money into some like lab resources into something that I thought I was going to mess up. But you know, if you don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. And Noor, what advice would you give to young Noor from a year ago pre-grad school? Like a year ago, I was working on my very first research poster, which was kind of scary, but also exciting. And I think one piece of advice I would give myself is to just ask for help. Part of it is uh, you're responsible for your own research poster and you kind of have to put things together and put all the figures and do all the analysis yourself. Uh, but at some point I did feel like I was a bit lost in how to do things because I've never done something like this before. And it was hard to reach out for help because it wasn't like I can go into the office and just kind of be like, hey, can you take a look at this or take a look at that? And I think it is really important to know that you can ask for help either from more experienced students or from your supervisor or um, even just kind of like reach out to people who have uh, done similar things to what you're doing before. I think that's really, really important. Don't be shy to ask for help. Like it's, it, we're all students at the end of the day and we're, we're all still learning. So yeah. You know, presenting is a skill and something that you really do need feedback on, even if you think you're already good at it, maybe. But yeah, that's solid advice. Just like, don't be afraid to ask for help. For myself, uh, reflecting back a year from now, I was thinking about starting to write my thesis. And I was actually in the process of applying to medical school, which I've now just started, which is like crazy if I look back a year from now. Um, and I think the main thing I would tell myself is make people aware of your goals and timelines and do it early because I spent a lot of time catastrophizing what would happen if my committee said I you know, wasn't ready to defend even though I had already done five years or what was going to happen if I didn't get this, like if they refused to sign some form or if I couldn't finish my thesis on time or if I couldn't, uh, was there even a point to defending on time if I wasn't going to get into medical school and I had a little bit more time to think about what I wanted to do after. Um, so I spent a lot of time just like worrying about the future and what would have been really helpful. And what I eventually did do was just tell people like, these are my timelines, these are my goals and yeah, ask for help or ask for their support or ask to help me meet those deadlines and timelines and stay on track. Um, and once I did that, like the answer was always yes. Um, so I, I didn't really hit any barriers with my supervisor or my committee or anybody who needed to write me reference letters for, for anything this year. So um, yeah, just it, once you tell, it's actually really interesting. Once you tell people your goals, like you'll be surprised at how much support comes at you or like how much advice you can get. And, and so I think that was sort of the biggest thing, um, from this year. I think it's a Will Smith quote says, don't make plan B just, it's a distraction from plan A. I don't know if that's solid advice, but uh. no, but it's, you know what, that's a, actually great advice because you, I think you can spend a lot of time just thinking like, oh, this is never going to work out. I'm, I'm spending a lot of time burning my own energy. And if you don't actually think like, if I didn't think like I will finish my thesis and defend by the end of June, 2021, that you're not going to do it because it actually, then you, you subconsciously start to procrastinate on a lot of things and put a lot of things off and don't ask people with the appropriate amount of time. 
I think like another thing that I've noticed in like in our conversation in this roundtable is that whenever it involves another person besides ourselves, communication and transparency is so important. It's so important to to communicate and be transparent about what you want, and so that other people also know, and you know, other people are able to communicate to you what what they want out of you. Yeah, and maybe we're like sort of biased because we're on all on a podcast, and communication is like our jam anyway. Maybe everybody's like laughing silently on Zoom right now. We talk too much. We get it. Um, yeah, so maybe we will move on to sort of winding down the episode here. Um, and we have a few maybe more lighthearted questions uh, and a rapid fire round to to follow up with that. And the fun thing about these is that everyone has not seen all of these questions. So I'm just going to pick somebody at random and they're going to unmute themselves and then answer the question as quickly as possible. So I'm going to pick Noor to start off with. And the, your, your question is going to be, if there was only one meal that you could eat for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, no. <laughs> fries. French fries? Yes, that's an amazing answer. Yeah. Honestly, like even mashed potatoes, anything made of potatoes. Potatoes are a great carb. I love that. Yeah, you can like make them in all kinds of shapes and sizes. <laughs> amazing. Okay, I'm going to ask Jesse this question, but I don't actually know. He, he might have been the person that submitted it. So let's see how it goes. Mac, Windows, or Linux? Linux. Yes. And I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, Daniel, this one's for you. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Wait, no. Tea. Whoa, whoa, tea, whoa, tea, whoa. I've been I've been drinking a lot more coffee recently, but if I really wanted a nice drink just to relax with, I would say tea. I've noticed I do this thing where I, I chug my coffee in the morning because I don't have enough time because I sleep in pretty late and I always get really nauseous after drinking a lot of coffee. So uh, my, my answer, final answer is tea. That was a big change very quickly, but we'll, we'll take it. Okay, thank you. Okay, Helen, this one's for you. Um, what is your go-to lunch at work when you're overwhelmed and there's no time for, for meal prep? Oh, interesting question. So my work site is around Toronto General and Princess Margaret. I do want to give a shout out because just because the owner is so nice. It's this it's in the Toronto General food court called Wing Machine and they have the best like curries and wings and fries there. And the thing is the owner is so nice because whenever I feel like I look a bit scruffier or noticeably <laughs> less showered <laughs> and stressed. He would genuinely ask you about your day and sneak in like free fries and wings on the side while you're waiting. And it just like makes my day. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. We love the small businesses. Let's do that. I, I love this question. And my go-to is the Jamaican patties at the Patties Place on Elm Street. I don't know if people have been there, but if you're by the PGCRL, which is the Sick Kids Research Tower, the Patties Place is like a one minute walk from there and it's very dangerous but it's very delicious this is all really good to know because i'm at i'm at pmrct and all i've been doing is going to starbucks to get lunch whenever i need to get a lunch so okay daniel needs food recommendations so any listeners that are uh still with us by the end of this episode find him email him instagram facebook wherever twitter wherever he's at and tell him where to go for food
Um, okay, I think this is the end of our episode, and I love how we ended it off. But yeah, thank you to everyone who's made it with us all the way till the end. And hopefully you've learned a little bit of something about graduate school from this episode. And we hope that any advice maybe stays with you or is helpful to you as you go through your grad career. So thanks for tuning in, everyone. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the university. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts and rate us five stars. 